Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. Amazing that you're here. God bless you more and more. Is our prayer. Um, if you wanted to give, the QR code's not on there. Let me give you a little pack here. Are you ready? MelbourneNorth.Numa.Church. MelbourneNorth.Numa.Church. Hopefully we'll get that up before the end of the service. We appreciate everyone who's uh, committed to being here. If you're just visiting, welcome. Uh, as we said, there's obviously all of us in the sense it's our first time here on the Sunday morning. But some of you guys... Yeah, you maybe just say, hey, I'm just here to talk things out. That's all right. We just pray that you encounter the Lord today. Uh, this is really, what we're talking about here is really building something that is people that have come to prepare themselves to host God's presence and to see Him move in power. And so I want to ask you to take your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. You're going to be reading um, I'm going to read actually a few verses, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. This is an amazing passage of scripture. The context, if you read Ephesians chapter 2, the context is Paul had just been sharing about the glorious gospel and how we're saved by grace through faith. And he continues and he speaks of all of the benefits and the blessings that are ours in Christ. As we've come to him, we've been brought near by his blood, Christ has become our peace. He's broken down the middle wall of partition so that we're one with him. Um, and then he continues in verse 19 and he, he says, we're not just individually saved, but we become part of a family. And that's so important. Um, you know, there's a lot of believers, a lot of saints out there that are body parts. Do you know what I mean? You're part of the body, that's the truth. If you are, you can be a hand, a foot, or whatever, using that analogy. But ultimately, if you're just operating individually or autonomously, and you're not connected to the body, you'll never really be able to experience all that God wants to do in you, and then through you as well. So it's really, really significant. You can be a body part, but not part of the body. And it's important that we connect with one another. So you... He speaks in verse 19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Then he says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Then verse 21, In whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Then look at verse 22. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place, God in the Spirit. Um, the old King James says, I guess it doesn't have to be the old King James, the King James is old. <laughs> Any, either way, you slice it, it's old, right? But it's 1611, right? So that goes back a little while. But it says that we're being built into a habitation. A habitation. So it's really important that we understand this. So as we embark upon these uh, initial Sundays, we're really going to be sharing about what God has called us to do. And we really need to move away from a mindset 
of being individualistic. Like, I'm saved, praise God, that yeah. I'm saved. Um, there's more to it than that. Yeah. So much more. Like, yes, praise God that you're saved. Praise God for his salvation. But he didn't save you just so you could be out there and, and kind of, you know, wandering around. And he's called you to be part of a body. Yeah. And um, sometimes the body isn't uh, exactly uh, the way it should be. It's not healthy. It, it doesn't function uh, the way it should be. But it's still true that he has one bride, he has one church, and we are called to be part of that church. Amen. I'm preaching better than you are responding. So, hey, it's time to loosen up, relax, okay? Let the Holy Spirit have his way, and uh, yeah, let God move. Um, so, it's all about becoming this habitation of God. Think about that. If Jesus, if the only reason Jesus died was that we would be saved and go to heaven. Now, this is just the way I think, all right? Why... I, I'm all about return on investment, right? Like, if I invest in something, I want to make a profit. Anybody else just love to invest so you can lose money? No. <laughs> so return on investment is this. The best thing he could have done to ensure that, you know, what he deposited in us was safeguarded was to kill us the moment we're born again. Think about Because he knew you would mess it up. And me. He knew you would make mistakes. But what did he do? He invests in us and he brings us on a journey so that we can grow and become more like Jesus Christ in spite of the fact that there's obviously massive inherent risk involved in that. But God did that because he has a purpose that is more than just going to heaven. That purpose is he is building a body on the earth and scripture uses different um, metaphors the body you know the temple the house all of these different metaphors but it all speaks of becoming that habitation of god and individually yes our bodies are the temple of the holy spirit first corinthians 6 19 but collectively corporately i love the word corporately because you know in latin it means body right so corporately the idea is that we are the temple or the household of God. We're the body of Christ. It's very, very important that we understand that. That we're called to be the habitation of God. There was a study that was done by the Barna Research Group in America. And this, this study was all about the presence of God in the church in America. And they looked at six reasons why young Christians leave the church particularly when they hit about the age of 17 or 18, it seems that many of the um, kids, when they go off to university or wherever, disconnect from God, disconnect from the church. And uh, some, many of them come back to the Lord later on, but not always. And so they looked at some of the reasons why this study is, like, why did you disconnect from the church? One third said church is boring. Okay. One quarter of the young adults said, faith is not relevant to my career or my interests. Now, I'm not saying these are all valid. I'm just stating the facts. And then, listen to this. Young adults said this. The Bible is not clearly or clearly taught or taught often enough in my wow. church. Wow. They want more of the word. Amazing. Okay. Then... One-fifth of the young adults who attended church as teenagers but no longer were said, 
God seems missing from my experience in church. God seems missing. Wow. You know, um, there's been times, if I were to be honest, maybe one time, where at least for a season, the beginning, a pastor of the church I wouldn't attend. Like, if I was with the pastor, I definitely would not come to that church. Just being honest, right? True story. But as we continue to, to pray, you know, to walk with the Lord, we began to see that change. Yes. And, and it became a good church, a healthy church, thank God. But there's only one thing worse than pastoring a church you wouldn't attend. And that's attending a church Jesus doesn't go to. Yeah. <laughs> and if you think, well, Jesus is everywhere. Well, he is. Theologians call that the imminence of God. It's, it's the tra- I'm sorry, the transcendence of God or the omnipresence of God. Um, the omnipresence of God means he's everywhere, right? The transcendence of God, he's everywhere. But eminence is about the manifest presence of God. The tangible presence of God. Sometimes we speak of it as the Shekinah. But it's all about feeling and sensing this experience. So think of it this way. If God is everywhere, which he is, and if the only um, experience that he invites us into is to go, oh yeah, God's everywhere. He's in me. He's there. He's in the tree. In fact, I am God. People believe that, don't they? And yet the scripture is very clear that we are called to draw near to God. James 4 says, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. So in Aramaic, it's very interesting. If you study that, the original meaning is this. It says, move closer and closer to God. And it says, and if you do, and you continue to do that, it says, he'll touch you. He'll touch you. That's what it means. God, get closer and closer to God, and then guess what happens? Something personal takes place. You experience the Lord in that way. It's powerful. And it's life-changing. It's tangible and personal presence. So the presence of God is something that the Lord desires all of us experience. Not just in the sense that we go, oh yeah, God's here. He fills the universe. He's everywhere. No, but tangibly, personally. And it changes everything. Remember Jacob, way back in the beginning in Genesis, right? He says, surely the presence of the Lord in this place. And there's a sense in which God wants us to recognize his presence. It's here with us. He's with us. It's something that we can experience and it brings change for life. We're called to be a people of presence in whom you're being built together for a dwelling place. A habitation of God in the spirit. Dwelling place means to house permanently. It speaks of habitation, not Visitation. God doesn't want merely weekend visitation. He wants to, to you to experience him permanently, dwelling in you, with you. Him we live, we move, we have our being. This is what he's called us to. And the, the actual uh, Amplified Bible says this in Ephesians 1.23. Paul speaking about the church being the body of Christ. And this is what he says. Ephesians 1.23, the body is the church, and the fullness of him who fills all in all lives in that body. 
the full measure of him who makes everything complete and who fills everything everywhere with himself. Think about that. Jesus, when he came to the earth, the Bible says, in him dwelt the fullness of the God and Father. And Paul continues to teach this. And basically what he says is that if you want to see Jesus today, you will look, you'll find him in his church in the body of Christ. That's what it's all about. Experiencing him that way. So that when people look at you, they look at me, when they look at us collectively, they see him in us. That's what he desires. Unfortunately, sometimes he's not, people have not seen Jesus when they look at the church. And uh, that's a sad reality, but nevertheless, God isn't changing his game plan. His plan is to redeem that. So regardless of how negative our experiences have been, how flawed we all are, how we misrepresented him, we're called to represent him by that times we misrepresent him. The truth still is that we are his body. Yeah. And he dwells in us and he reveals himself to people, to, to believers and to, uh, to non-believers through us. So throughout scripture from Genesis all the way to the end of the Bible and Revelation is this meta-narrative. And the meta-narrative is all about this, that God wants to dwell among those people. That's it. I mean, in the beginning, in Genesis, right? What, what do we hear about? Adam and Eve in Eden. And the Lord comes down. Genesis 3, 8 talks about that. And they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the evening. They hear the sound. Interestingly, the Hebrew word that is translated sound actually means voice. They heard the voice of the Lord. And if you define it even more specifically, it's a voice that's calling. So here's God. Think about that. Now, the sound of the Lord God. Now, how did they know? It was just a sound. Like, it could be a kangaroo, right? Well, probably not the garden. Maybe. Could be a lion. I don't know. There were lions. But, no, they heard the voice. And how did they know it was God's voice? Because they were familiar with him. They had a relationship. They had intimacy with him. And the, the voice of God was calling to them. So they had this experience. As you continue, you know, you read throughout Scripture, you, it, even in the days of, of uh, Abraham and Moses and David, and in the New Testament, Jesus became the temple, the tabernacle, he tabernacled among us, and he revealed the Father. So he literally became the habitation of the Father wow. on the earth. So powerful. And the Scripture talks about this. And so we are called to be a people of his presence. And Adam and Eve, of course, when they sinned, that, that communion was disrupted, but Jesus came to restore it. You know, when you, when you think about eternal life, eternal life isn't something that you just receive. Eternal life isn't just something that, you know, someone gives you, but God says, here's a gift of eternal life. Yes, it's true, it is a gift. But eternal life is actually an experience. Eternal life is an experience. It's not like, well, when I die, I don't go to that bad place. I go to the good place. No, eternal life, according to the words of Jesus himself in John 17, 3, is all about communion 
relationship with God. This is what he said. He's, he is praying and to his father. And he said, this is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God. And Jesus Christ who you sent. So eternal life is knowing the father and knowing the son. Obviously the Holy Spirit as well. Eternal life is knowing. It's a Greek word. It's gnosko. And gnosko means to know experientially. To know personally. And it speaks of knowing intimately. You remember after Jesus was born and, uh, you know, the scripture, the gospel say that he had uh, at least two sisters and four brothers. We, we know that it says that um, Joseph knew Mary. It's the word gnosko. Let's keep it G-rated. Well, you know what that means, right? Joseph knew Mary. Okay. Back in the Old Testament, Adam knew Eve. The byproduct children were born. It's the Hebrew word yada. And yada and gnosko are basically the Old and New Testament equivalent. That God said, I want you to yada. He says, I know Moses, yada. And he said, Moses knows me, yada. It's an experience. And so in the New Testament, it's saying you might know God. You might experience him personally. You might know his heart. You might hear his voice. You may know his affections. You might experience all of his goodness in your life. And it's an amazing thing. And so many believers have failed to know. They, they know of him. They read the Bible, which is important. But you can know the word of God and not know the God of the word. Yeah, that's true. The Pharisees in John 5 said, Jesus said, you diligently study the scriptures. Now, if I were to tell you how diligently they study the scriptures, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, do you know that some of these guys, these Pharisees, by the time they were 18 years of age, they had memorized the Torah, the, the, Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Some of them that Jesus was addressing, by the time they were 30, had memorized the entire Old Testament. Memorize. Wow. You diligently study the scripture. Yes. But you don't know me, Jesus. Yeah. He said this. They test, the scriptures testify. They speak of who I am. They reveal me. But yet you refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life. Yeah. Know the word, the scriptures, but not know him. So the scriptures point to Jesus. Yes. Scriptures, the Bible says that that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony, or the testimony of Jesus, the spirit of prophecy. It's all about God revealing himself to us, to know him personally. And when you experience that, it changes your life. Changes everything about you. You you can quote scripture. Listen to what I'm saying, please. Don't misunderstand me. And it's just cerebral, it's, it's academic, and it's just up here. But down here, you still struggle in your soul. And, and you're still struggling. And so what you do is, you, you know, it's kind of like a pep talk. I'm going to give myself a pep talk, a motivation. And, and I'm going to, you know, speak to myself. And there's times to do that. David did that, absolutely, 100%. But you have to come to the place where it's settled in your heart 
that you know who he is as a result. You know who you are. It has to be settled. So we're no longer, you know, striving or dealing with that orphan mindset and mentality, but we're established in our identity because we know his love and his intimacy, and we know his thoughts concerning us. It's settled once and for all. Got to get that right. How many believe that? And it doesn't come without a personal relationship with him, knowing him. So... We need to secondly prioritize his presence. Yeah. Prioritize his presence. So what does it mean to prioritize? It means you need to put it as, as preeminent, as the most important thing. What is the most important thing to you know of? Could it be a career, you know, advancing the corporate ladder? Perhaps it's another degree. Perhaps it's making money, crewing wealth. But yeah, a relationship. You know, so many people, oh, I just need someone, I need someone. Yeah. And yet, the Bible is very clear that God, Jesus, has to have the preeminence. Right. Yeah. He has to have the priority yeah. in our lives. Yeah. It's not about going to church, right? Come on. Yeah. Go to church, it's important. We need one another. Yes. But, you know, someone has said going to church doesn't make you a Christian anymore than going to Macros makes you a hamburger. It's knowing him. It's having that relationship yeah. with him. Guys, you can be in ministry for years. Yeah. Years. And lose it. Wow. Lose that intimacy. Wow. Lose that fresh yes. revelation that comes from walking with Jesus himself. You can say the right things, preach the right things, yeah. but deep down within in your heart, you don't have that personal place where you prioritize his presence. And how do we prioritize his presence? We make time, space, and room in our own lives for him. Yeah, I need need to know you. I need to spend time with you. I need to cultivate this. I need to to invest in this relationship. And if you want that, then you're going to experience it. Because he said that those that call upon his name is rewarded those that diligently seek him. So the Lord is calling us to that place of seeking Him. Seeking Him. Is He hiding from us? Why do we need to seek Him? You know, in Isaiah, it actually says, the prophet says, Surely you are a God that hides yourself. Surely you are a God that hides yourself. It's the glory of God to conceal about Moses. But it's the glory of kings to search it up. So our place is to go after him, to want more of him, to seek him. That's why, as Pastor Corey shared last Sunday night, for those of you who were there, you know, Moses wasn't content with just the promises. I'll, I'm not going to go with you into the promise by Moses. I'm not going to come to you nor the children of Israel. Now, many of us would have said, God, completely understand. We've been stiff-necked. We've been rebellious. And, yeah, we get it, Lord. But thank you for being faithful. And you're going to bring us into the promised land. Even if you don't take us in personally, the angel, yeah, that's good. That works. But not Moses. 
No, uh uh-uh. uh. Don't send us out unless your presence goes with us. Unless you personally are with us, don't send us What will, one translation says, distinguish us from all the other people on the face of the earth unless your presence goes with us? What God intended originally was that we would be different. It literally says in Hebrew, what will separate us from all the other people? What separates God's people from every other person, every other people, every other religion? What separates us? It's not our theology. Though our theology is important, but it's his presence. See, Jesus is the only founder of a religion that attends every service. I'm sorry. The other guys, you're not alive. Jesus is. He's with us. He wants to reveal himself. But we have to prioritize. We have to put him first in our lives. How do we do that? We seek his face always. Psalm 105 verse 4 says this. That we are called to seek his face always. James 4.10 says this. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So humble yourself. That's important. And how do we humble ourselves? In the sight of the Lord. One translation the New American says in the presence of the Lord. But in the original language it actually says before the face of the Lord. You humble yourself before the face of the Lord. And guess what? He will lift you up. And that means to exalt, to raise to dignity, to prestige, honor, and even happiness. If you will seek, I will seek his face. What an amazing thing. So we know in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 through 18, Paul says this, now the Lord is the spirit. Wow. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Okay, now listen to this. The Lord is the spirit. Interestingly, in the next verse, he actually says in the last verse, I'm sorry, in the last sentence, for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. Now, Jesus is Lord, correct? Paul says, Spirit, Holy Spirit is Lord. And the idea here is that where the Spirit of God is allowed to exercise lordship, to rule, to reign, to govern, and we're under his lordship, we're under the rule and reign of Holy Spirit, there's freedom. Freedom. There's freedom when we are submitted to his lordship. What an amazing thing. The Holy Spirit is ruling and reigning, speaking, convincing us of his truth, his power and love. There is freedom when we are submitted. And it's interesting, he continues and he says, well, that we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, he is referring to the Old Testament when Moses met with the Lord. Remember, um, he, he was literally in the presence of God in his face shone. He came down from the mountain and 
he put a veil over his face so the children of Israel would not be halted. Do you remember? Yeah. And Paul gives us an amazing revelation here. He says, the reason why Moses did that, God instructed him to do that, was because that glory was fading. That glory was fading. In other words, even though the children of Israel certainly couldn't handle that, even that, which was obviously not the fullness of who he was, that glory was fading. But in the New Testament, we now have access into the Holy of Holies. The veil has been torn from top to bottom, so we have access into his very presence because of the blood of Jesus and what he did. And so it's like having an unveiled face that we can come before him and we can behold him. And when we continue to behold him, when we stare at him, when we make it our practice to behold him, to seek his face always, the Bible says it's like looking into a mirror. There's a reflection and the reflection isn't us. It isn't us seeing ourselves, but there's a reflection and that is the glory of God. And that glory, when it, when it emanates and it fills us, it changes us. And we go from one degree of glory to the next. I remember I was in a season years ago um, where I was just really seeking God. And I had a, had a real hunger for him. Um, but I was also seeking him for direction. And the Lord spoke to me and he said, well, he said, why are you seeking me? I said, I need you to answer me, Lord. I need direction. And the Lord said, seek me. Amos chapter 5 says, seek me and live. Wow. Not the handout, not the benefits. Seek Seek his face. When I do seek his face, personal, intimate relationship, you will get the stuff. He'll take care of it. You will. But it's all about him. Can you imagine? Let's just put it into the vernacular. You get married. Here you are. You're excited. Let's talk to the man for a moment. Man, it's your honeymoon, right? Okay. Then your bride says, oh, I'm glad we're married. Um, I'm going shopping. I only married you for your credit card. I married you for your stuff. I'm really not interested in having a relationship. But can you please give me this? Can you? You know, I'm being observed. But the same reality is true. We seek God for what he can give us rather than who he is. When we get it right, because everything falls into his rightful place. And we become more like him. This is scripture that I love. It's actually um, Romans 8.28. Do you remember that verse? How many know that? The classic Christian that knows that verse has misunderstood what it means. For I know, we know, that all things work together for the good of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. So we'll say, hey, 
Praise you, Lord. I lost my job. It's all good. He's going to give me another job. He's going to turn this thing around. You know, we quote that other scripture in Genesis. The devil meant it for evil. God's going to use it for good. Right? But when you read, all things work together for good. I'm going to get preaching now. Then I'm telling you what and how do all things work together for our good? How does it work? Next verse. The next verse, verse 29, starts off with a very important word. In English, it's for. And whenever there's a for, there's a before. All things work together for good. To those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Lord. I claim that. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to his image or his likeness, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So how do things, all things, work together for our good? If we are submitted to him, that it will result in us becoming conformed to his image and likeness. We become more like Jesus. I want a new house. I want a new partner. I want a new... No, he wants to make a new you. He wants to give you a new attitude, a new way of thinking, a new lifestyle. He wants to change you so that you're not the person you were, but that you become more and more like Jesus. So no matter what you go through, if it's good, if it's not good, he is saying, I'm going to use this to apply pressure or to bring you to a place of greater surrender and submission to me. And the outcome will be, you will become more like my son, Jesus. That's it. And if we're like Jesus, I reckon there's nothing we can't do. I mean, if he needed something, he just said, go fishing. You know, if he multiplied the fish and all. I mean, if we're like him, wow, we're going to know his voice. We're going to be led by the spirit. We're going to live in a place of such intimacy. Wow. If we will pursue his presence. And lastly, let's understand that sometimes we need to protect the presence. We need to protect the presence. You know, there's, there's this place uh, in, in Timothy, I think it's in 2 Timothy 1, um, verse number 13-ish. Uh, ish. Um, and so that could mean second chapter, no, first chapter. For sure it's in the first chapter. And it actually says this. It says, guard what has been entrusted to you, which also has been entrusted to you. Guard it by the help of the Holy Spirit. So what is God entrusted to you? It's a, it's a treasure. It's a good deposit. He says you need to guard it. The word means to watch over it by keeping your eye upon it. It's actually a military term, and it speaks of guarding something, like a sentinel who would stand watch. You know, if you've ever gone to, to Buckingham Palace, you know, those guys with the beef eater hats, all those guys, and they're there, looks like you're... Like, they're not watching you, they're watching you. They are watching. And 
It's like we're focused and we're guarding what has been entrusted to us. What does that mean? It means we recognize that the enemy is a thief. We recognize that this life, this our life, if we're not careful, we can lose what God has given to us. Yeah. Scripture tells us, tells us that we can quench the Holy Spirit. First Thessalonians 5.19. Quench not the Holy Spirit. Literally, it means don't put out the Spirit's fire. We can put out the Spirit's fire. That is absolutely mind-blowing. That God has given us that much authority. That we can do that. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God. By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Spirit. We can grieve him. That, that word grieve means to insult, to hurt, to cause harm. So that spirit says hi. Uh, we were pastoring in the United States. For those of you who don't know, we're from Canada. We lived in the United States for many years. We were pastoring and we saw revival right now. I mean, a real revival. And people were coming and uh, we were on, on media, the whole thing. And what ended up happening is after several weeks, after seeing so many salvations and healings and miracles, after several weeks, we walked into the building one Sunday. It was like cold. Where something happened. What? what? And, and I was like, okay, what's going on? And we began to pray. Say, Lord, what's happened? Why is it that your presence isn't strong and tangible as it was? Sure, we found out that there was a few people in the church that had been speaking against the leadership and lies and gossip. I'm telling you, it was outright lies. I wasn't, it wasn't me directly, it was one of our elders. And they lied against, about him, spread vicious rumors. Tried to destroy him and then said some other nasty things as well. And as I prayed, the Lord showed me that scripture. God it. Deal with this. You see? Because Paul said that we can quench the spirit. We, we can literally grieve the Holy Spirit. In Acts 7 51, you know, Stephen is he's about to be stoned, they're about to kill him. Talk about grieving the spirit because he's preaching the word. And he says to them, You're stiff necked, you're uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. For you always resist the Holy Spirit. You resist the Holy Spirit. So we can breathe, we can quench, we can resist. In Hebrews 10 29, it says, Don't do despite unto the Spirit of grace. You can do despite unto the Spirit of grace. Sometimes we have to guard His presence. What we look at, what we say, what we listen to can grieve his presence. See, think about it this way. Don't put out the Spirit's fire. How do you put out a fire in the natural? Well, there's at least two ways. You can smother a fire. You can throw a wet blanket on a fire. You can you know, use a fire extinguisher. You can suffocate it, so to speak. And that's what it's 
we do basically when we grieve the spirit with sins of commission, things we know we shouldn't do. We shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be thinking that. We shouldn't be. And it grieves the spirit. And when we do it collectively, when a church engages in it, guys, and even sometimes just a few people can shift the entire atmosphere until you yeah. deal with it. Wow. Until you deal with it. That's good. So what happens though is there's another way that the fire goes out. By starving it. Yeah. By failing to put fuel on the fire. So we can cause the fire just to burn out because we're not being intentional on stoking the fire. Leviticus 6, Paul, I'm sorry, Paul, Moses, I've been talking about Paul a lot. Moses says, hey, look, this fire, the fire on the altar, it must never go off, verses 12 and 13. So make sure that every night the priests bring firewood and place them on. Make sure that the fire never goes off. Ensure that it never goes off. So it's very important that we build this fire, that we watch over this fire, that we don't allow anything to quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes your emotions and your thinking can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I believe David said in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. In other words, soul, you don't necessarily feel like praising him right now, but you're going to praise him anyway. You're going to praise him in spite of how you feel, in spite of what's going on in your life, in spite of what people said to you, in spite of even what you did or thought. Bless his holy name, soul. Do it and keep the fire burning. In closing, there are at least four types of churches. We have churches that are program-based churches. We have churches that are personality-led. The leader leaves, falls apart. What do you think? What do you think you like? Everybody's like, oh, I knew it was oh, you know, it's part of the fire. Okay. Churches that are preaching-focused. Preaching-folks. I mean, that preacher can't preach. And the preachers come in and they preach. But yeah, something's still missing. And that's the last time in church. Churches that are presence-centered. Presence-centered. What do I mean by that? See, I want you to think for a moment about the children of Israel in the wilderness. When they were led by the Spirit, which was the pillar of fire, the cloud, you know, it was God was leading them, wasn't it? But when the time came where they were to camp, the 12 tribes were arranged, literally, three tribes in the northeast, southwest, literally arranged uh, around the tabernacle. The tabernacle represented the presence of God. They camped around the presence. The presence was the center of it all, his presence. And it's an amazing thing that prophetically we're living in a time when God is reorienting the church around his presence. He's bringing us back to his presence. You see, 
Religious activity and service void of the presence of God is of no concern to Satan. He didn't care how big the church is. But if you have the presence of God, if you have the power of the Spirit, see, he makes the anointing. It's only the anointing that stop. And the enemy despises men and women that walk in the anointing of the Spirit. He despises those who walk in an apostolic anointing, a prophetic anointing. And he'll do whatever he can to render ineffective and impotent such service. If he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy, right? If he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. Too busy to fight. Too busy. Center of my life is all his presence. If that's the case, time to reorient. It's time to change that. Let God have his way. Here at Numa, um, Melbourne North, guys, this is what we're all about. I'm going to be preaching on this. You know, the funny thing is, somebody said, um, how many sermons have you preached? Thousands, literally. Been in ministry for over 30 years. But sometimes I feel like I just have one sermon. And it's like a thousand hours long. <laughs> one sermon a thousand hours long. Why? Because it all comes back to the presence. Knowing him. Experiencing him. And we've met in places as we've traveled, and uh, we've met dear beloved saints who were part of major moves of God years ago. Now they're up in age, and they've said this to us even recently. I haven't felt the presence of God right now in 40 years. I remember preaching to a bunch of pastors not too long ago. And at the end, of, there was about seven great pastors that walked up to me. And they said, wow, oh, it was amazing. I said, no, the presence of God was here. We felt the anointing. And I said, that's amazing. And these pastors began to say to me, look, we haven't felt the anointing right now. We haven't sensed the anointing right Years. Years. It is tragic. Guys, it's the only thing that changes us. Being in his presence. Yeah. We behold his face, his presence. We become more and more like him. We don't have to try to change. It's amazing. He changes us. Yeah. It's effortless. Jesus said, you know what? Our responsibility, I mean, if you knew you were going to die in seven minutes, okay, what would you say to the people that are nearest and nearest to you? What would you say? You know what Jesus did? Talk about the presence. When you read John's Gospel, you know, start with the 13th chapter, and you get 14 Holy Spirit, 15. It's almost like you see that dressing. He's talking about the vine and the branches. 
my brother. Yeah. And he, he says, every branch that abides in you bears much fruit. And interesting, what is fruit? Fruit is the external manifestation of the invisible life that is in the plant, a vine, or tree. Did you hear that? Yes. Fruit is the external manifestation, the physical manifestation, the outward manifestation of the invisible life that is in the tree or vine. And if the branch is connected to the vine, abide, the life flows from the vine into the branch. And the branch effortlessly bears fruit. See, it's not your responsibility to bear fruit. Bearing fruit is a promise. Abiding is a process. So when we abide, he bears the fruit. We stay connected. The life flows into us. This is why New Year's resolutions don't work. So, stay connected to Him. His life flows into you. He changes your desires. He changes everything. So, bearing fruit is the promise. Abiding is the process. That's what it's all about. His rest. His rest. Yeah. I'm strong. I, I, I'm dealing with stress. I'm dealing with anxiety. Rest. Yeah. Rest. Yeah. Rest. I, I've got these thoughts. I've got this pain. You know? Rest. Get in his presence. Stay connected. Uninterrupted community fellowship. It'll change everything. Change everything about your life. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.